Today we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. If you could please tweak me just a little bit more. Hebrews 13 verses 7 and 17 is what I'm going to be dealing with. But I'm going to read the entire passage 7 through 17 here in a short while. Uh, but before we begin, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you this morning for this gathering of your people. We've come here to worship the one true and living God and give thanks to you because of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit, whom you have sent to us to dwell inside of our hearts, to lead us in matters of truth, to lead us in response and in worship to, your, to our Savior. And we do admit and confess that there was, at one point, when we were distant from you, but you have called us to yourself with saving power and have drawn us near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we want to honor you. We want to respond in a way this morning that is pleasing to you. We thank you for your word that is truth. Please speak to our hearts. And so, Lord, we trust this time into your hands and ask you, Lord, to do as only you can. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In our kitchen, there is a list. It's on one of the windows that has all the various appointments and schedule for the week that's coming up for our family. When, we have a num when you have a number of kids in your house who are coming and going in various places, we know that we might forget something, and uh, sometimes, sometimes we do. Maybe you know what that's like. There are dentist appointments here, guitar lessons that are there, and so on. These are some of the week's priorities, things that must be done. And maybe you've got a different system inside your house. Maybe you don't write them down physically anywhere. Maybe your phone's calendar. Maybe it reminds you. Technology does make some of those things easier for us. Maybe you have an actual calendar. Sometimes people give those things away, and people still write down things on the physical calendar. Or maybe you've got one of those old scheduling books that people used to carry around. You write down the priorities, things that you need to plan for, things that you need to make sure that you do not miss. And we need to make sure that we don't miss those things, right? Because those things are important in life. They need to get done. But it's possible in all of our planning, all of our concerns in this life, to not prioritize what God says is most important. It can happen that amidst all the bustle, all the activities, that we forget to hold on to and grow in our faith in His Son. That's the priority. It's possible, even probable at times, that we put that on cruise control and we manage and prioritize all the stuff that we think is really important. In the back of our minds, we maybe don't say it out loud, but maybe we do think it in some way that Jesus will always be there, tucked away for when I need him. But right now, I've got to get all of these doctor's appointments in and figure out how to pay the bills. Those are the things that are really important. And all the while... While Jesus is in the background somewhere, those temptations are starting to mount. Hearts are beginning to wander. Sin starts winning. Relationships start failing. Worldliness begins growing. 
And now you have to prioritize how to put out all of the fires that you've started. This whole book of Hebrews has been telling us about the priority of making Christ first. He is supreme. Learning to live by faith in him is the priority amid all the temptations that cause us to turn to something else instead of Jesus. Maybe you've got some of those temptations happening in your life right now. Is there something that is calling you away from Jesus Christ to make something else the priority in your life? For these people 2,000 years ago, it was the temptation of going back to Judaism. That's what was calling them. It was much easier. It was much more acceptable in the culture. It was an accepted religion. Nobody was going to bother you in most cases if you were a Jew. But if you became a Christian, so often they thought of the Christians as being atheists because they didn't have a regular place of worship. They didn't make sacrifices. They didn't offer up anything to the gods that people could see. There was no blood being spilled because they said the blood had already been spilled. So they looked at these Christians and they began to wonder, who are these people what is it that they are doing with their lives? They look subversive. They don't bow the knee to Caesar. They don't have a recognized religion. They must be doing evil. And they began to persecute the Christians. And so these people began to think, you know what? It would just be easier if we would go back to our former way of life. And this entire letter has been written to tell them there is nothing to go back to. Judaism is over. The sacrifices have been offered, yes, in the past, but now one true sacrifice has come and has wrapped up everything. That's what this book is about. Their world was hostile to Christ, and it was getting real for them. Satan has an arsenal of strategies to draw hearts from Jesus, and he has a lot to work with here in America. He has a lot at his disposal to use to distract us, to cause us to be busy, to put our minds on something else other than the Son of God. Sometimes it's materialism. We have a lot in comparison to others who live around the world, and we have a lot compared to those who have gone before us. Sometimes it's sensuality. That seems to be everywhere. Sometimes it's sports. On top of all the stuff that people have always dealt with, things like relationships. Relationships are hard no matter when you live because sin keeps getting in the way. Maybe it's health. People have always gotten sick, and people are still sick and will be getting sick. Those things cause our minds to wander. Maybe it's security, the need to feel safe, maybe from danger, physical danger, Sometimes just security and the comforts of this world, knowing that things are going to be paid for, knowing that I'm going to be okay. Maybe it's just having necessities. Sometimes some people don't have the basic necessities, shelter over their heads, food to eat, clothes on their back. Those things have always been challenges for people no matter where they live, and they continue to be challenges for people today. There is a lot to be distracted by. There is a lot to take up our mental and emotional space in this world. And Satan will use whatever he can to do so, so as you do not focus on the Son of God. And what we're being reminded of here in this letter 
is that the number one priority in the midst of all of life throws at us is our faith. Keeping your eyes on Jesus, no matter what storm you currently are in. That is the key for every situation, but as you and I both know, it is so easy. It's so easy to lose sight of. Jesus has secured a kingdom for his people to live in. We live there currently. There is something about us that's already seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We belong to heaven. He has won that kingdom for us to live in beyond this world. But right now, we can only see it by faith. But what we often do is we begin to live for what we can see right in front of us instead of what we cannot see. And we forget what is most important and lasting. So here at the very end of this letter, we're about to land the plane here in Hebrews. Only a couple more weeks left. But before we do, we read of one more section that he writes to encourage these people. It's meant to help them to press forward all, to, all the way to the end in faith. And so I'm going to read this whole section, verses 7 through 17. But today we're only going to deal with the first and last verse of it, 7 and 17. Let's read together. We're told here, remember your leaders those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Heavenly Father, we trust these verses, your word, into your hands, and we pray, Lord, that you will speak to our hearts. I pray that if there is distraction in this room, Lord, that you would cause it to cease and focus our hearts on Jesus Christ and this word that you have in front of us that is meant to lead us to stronger faith in him. And we pray it in his name. Amen. The point of these two verses that we're going to focus our time on, verses 7 and 17, is this. That your relationship with your leaders, your church leaders, is for the building of your faith. That's the aim of the relationship that you have with the leaders in your church. It is to build your faith. So how is it that these leaders are supposed to do this according to these verses? What are we being taught here? 
How are leaders intended to strengthen the faith of God's people? And here is a, uh, a summary of what we see in these two verses. Good leaders are given by God to build the faith of his people by speaking the word of God, providing an example to imitate, and keeping watch over the souls of Christ's sheep. Let me say that again. This is what we're being taught here, that what leaders are supposed to do in the church, speak the word of God, provide an example to imitate, and keep watch over the souls of Christ's sheep. Look first at verse 7. Let me read it again. He says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Here in this verse, it looks as though he is reminding these people of leaders that they used to have, former leaders. He speaks about them in a past tense kind of way. So these are leaders who are no longer with them. He says, remember them. And as you remember them, the first thing that he wants them to think of is the way that they spoke the word of God to them. They brought the word of God. They didn't come bearing their own opinions, things that they wanted to make known about themselves or about various topics that were out there, things going on out in the world. They didn't come expressing their own opinions. They came to bear the word of God to these people. So these messengers that came to them were from the Lord. And they came speaking his word, specifically his word about his son. That's what Hebrews has been concerned with from the beginning. He opened this letter by telling us how in the old days prophets spoke the word, but in these last days he has spoken his word to us by his son. So the final authoritative message that has come from Jesus about Jesus. That's the word. That is the culmination of all the word of God in the Old Testament. It is fulfilled in the speaking of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and he came bearing that word to us. He came down from heaven and spoke the word to the people here on earth, and it was a word about himself. And then in chapter 2, we read, the word was first declared by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So he now says the Lord passed on his word to certain people who went out then and passed on that word to others. And that's when it came to meet the people here in this church. So those are the leaders that he is referring to, these leaders who received the word from Jesus and then came and told these people the gospel, the communication of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God. That is what he is referencing here. All these people who now make up this church are to remember those who first came bearing the word. And he says, remember what they taught about Jesus. But then he says, consider how their lives turned out. Consider the outcome of their way of life. In a sense, what he's asking them, did they live out what they taught? Did they live out successfully what they came speaking to you about? And we have to answer yes, because he says here they are worthy of imitation. 
They didn't just come speaking the word. They didn't just preach the word. They practiced what they preached all the way to the end. Have you ever heard somebody say, imitation is the best form of flattery? You ever heard that? The only reason somebody would imitate another person is because he sees in that guy something that he likes. And when he sees what he likes, he also wants to be like that guy, and so he wants to imitate what he has seen. And if you look out there at the world, that's exactly what's going on. There is a lot of imitation. She wants to look like her. He wants to act like him have the things that he has, dress with the clothes she has, use the same kinds of words and mannerisms that they do, whoever they are. And so imitation is happening all around us every day, and what you value will determine what you imitate. What you value will determine what you imitate. We're all imitators in some way or another. And so the question comes to us this morning then, what do you value? What is it that you value? Because you're probably imitating something that you have seen and like out there somewhere. And so what are we being told that we need to value and imitate as Christians? We're told that we need to imitate faith. That's what he says here. Imitate their faith. So we are to imitate faith that has been well-lived and ultimately died. It's verses like this that press us on to not only live well, but to die well. You think much on that? People don't necessarily like thinking about death, do they? That's not something you're told to dwell on very much, but the people of God are to think on death. We need to think on how to not just live well, but to die well in faith. We're all going to die. But will we die well in faith, worthy of imitation? That somebody else might look at the way you lived your life and then look how you exited this life and say, I want to go out like that. I have read countless stories about men and women who have died well. At a number of funerals, I've read the story of Dwight Moody and the words that he spoke with his family by his side as he passed on from this world to the next. And there is such encouragement in that. I want to die well someday. And I hope you do too. And it's worth thinking on. And I know when you're young, you're not thinking on stuff like that, but you do not know how much time you have left in this world. And may the Lord Jesus find you living in faith when it is time for you to go. I think about that parable that Jesus taught about the man who spent his whole life accruing possessions, and that's just the substance of his life. And God looked at him and said, You fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. 
We do not want to live as fools in this life. We want to know that at any point God could call us home and we want to die well. We don't get to say how we're going to go. But I would certainly prefer to be laying in a bed like Moody was with his family gathered around his side, being able to speak words of encouragement to them, not just they to me. Look to Christ. He's knocking at my door and I'm standing at the river and I can't wait to get across, but I want to see you on the other side. Faith all the way to the end. That's what we're being called to. Faith that's worthy of imitation. That is valuable. That's valuable. All those other things that you value have a short shelf life. They expire when you do. But faith, the faith that these leaders spoke to you about, he says here, and the faith that these leaders lived out in front of you, God is telling us in his word that this is what he wants his, wants his people to imitate. Are there people around you that are worthy of imitating in this way? He gives leaders in his church, they're supposed to model this very thing how to live and how to die. I was thinking this week, some of you all were here on Wednesday night, Billy Anderson uh, came and gave his testimony, and so it was very encouraging to see Bill back in church. It's been a tough six years for him. He's had leukemia, a lot of ups and downs, a stroke. He and Patty have demonstrated, it seems to me, how to live well in faith when life has been hard. Matter of fact, it's not just six years, it's been eight years where they've had dear family members in and out of the hospital the entire time. It's been a struggle, no doubt. But their faith has not wavered. And all along, Bill has known, no matter what happened to him with his cancer or anything else, that he's going to go home and be with Jesus. And that has not wavered. That's faith worthy of imitation. He also mentioned in his testimony Pastor Crate. Pastor Crate was here from 1977 to 1997. Carl Crate. About a year and a half ago, he went to be with his Lord. He was pushing 90 years old. And Bill referenced him and some of what Pastor Crate had taught and said to him during his time here at Kaz. And I was thinking about him and how he was a leader worthy of imitation all the way to the end. And his wife, too. They remained faithful. It's about running the race until you hit the finish line. That's what we're taught to hear in God's Word. That's what we've been taught here in Hebrews. It's not about making it halfway. It's not about starting well. A lot of people start well. And unfortunately, there's probably a lot of people that you know of that have started well that have not finished well. They have not remained strong all the way to the end. That gives great concern about their souls. But we desire to be people who maintain faith until we hit the finish line. And may God bless us with faith that does that very thing. That's what these people are being taught about here. About having leaders that, they, that have been placed in their lives that are worthy of imitation, not because of how successful they looked to the world, not how many things they accumulated along the way, 
not even how nice they were along the way, but that they simply had faith in Jesus Christ all the way to the end. The Apostle Paul would say, follow me as I follow Christ. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, he says, practice these things. He told the churches that he had given them an example to follow. Those are strong words, are they not? How many of us are willing to say something like that? What you have seen and heard in me, do what I've done. That is a high calling. But those who are called to lead are called to be models of the gospel that they speak. It doesn't mean that these people are going to be perfect. Paul was not perfect. But even in failure, even when we fail, even when we sin, the response should be to turn to Christ and to show other fellow failures where to turn to. And that's to repent of sin and turn to Jesus Christ. We all need good teachers, and we all need good examples. We need both. People who speak the word, but people who also live out the word. And so this church should not only have leaders who speak the word of God, but make every effort to live it out faithfully all the way to the end. And in order to do this, you must see this book that we have here in front of us as coming from God, that it is his word that is being spoken and having authority over your life. Every leader here must see it that way and must model that to the people of God. This book has been given to us. Everything that we need for life and faithfulness is in here. We don't need any extra revelation. We don't need a word that comes from somebody else to tell us what we don't already have in this book. does not mean we don't need encouragement from some people from time to time, but they're only going to be encouraging us what they also know about this book to point us toward Jesus Christ. And so every leader must affirm that. For everybody else who follows behind, The words of God are going to rub your hair the wrong way from time to time. Has that ever happened to you? You read something in here, or somebody speaks a word, you don't like it. You don't like what you're being told. You wish that it said something different, something easier, something that agrees with what you want. But there it is, right there in God's word, telling you you are not to proceed. So ask yourself in that moment, is it really the word of God? And is that really better for me than what I want for myself? And it will take faith in that moment to obey. Faith. That's when the rubber meets the road. Will you agree with God or will you simply agree with what you want? The flesh will want to give in, but faith will say, not my will, Lord, but yours. And you need leaders who speak that way to you and also model it in the way that they live. And so the writer of Hebrews is drawing to mind these people who have gone before them and done this well all the way to the grave. He says, do not fall short of what you have seen in them. They made it. 
And no, it was not easy. It might even be that the way that he's speaking to them, they might have died for their faith. I don't know. Paul certainly did. And so he says, what you have seen in them, keep doing yourself. That's verse 7. He also has something to say to them about their current leaders in verse 17. And I have to admit, as the lead pastor here, this verse is very sobering for me, or just as sobering for me as I think it will be for you. I'll read it again as well. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. When I was a surveyor, I had to learn some of the particularly useful stars and constellations. There's a lot of them up there. You don't get to see many of them here in the city. You've got to get out in the country to be able to see those stars and constellations. But one that was a must that we had to learn was the North Star. And so that whenever you get lost, you get disoriented, you need to be able to find the North Star so at least you know which direction you're pointed. In those moments, that star was your friend. And that's what this verse right here should serve for, for any pastor or any elder in the church. We're being told that the task is keeping watch over souls. Think about that. Who feels that he can rise to the occasion for something like that? Souls. Now, we might not think it very important if we're given charge over somebody else's physical property or you know, even a shepherd who's out there keeping watch over the flock by night. He's watching over sheep and needs to guard them, and that is important work. But think about this. He's saying that the job of a leader is to keep watch over souls, souls that have an eternity somewhere. That's the job of leaders in the church. There is a kind of gravity to that, a weight that causes a person to feel very insufficient out of his depth. And so whoever takes up this task had better be very dependent on the good shepherd. And as somebody who has taken up this task, I am reminded here of how needful I am of Christ. And if that verse is not intimidating enough, the phrase after it should be. It says that these leaders are those who will have to give an account. And there's something in this for your pastors and your elders here at Kaz Church, but there is something also here for you, the flock at Kaz. But first, for the pastors and the elders. Anybody who aspires, ever aspires to be a leader here at the church must approach it with this verse in mind. Always understanding that to take up this task means that someday you will stand before the Lord himself and give an account for his people. And I'm sure that we're going to stand before the Lord and give an account for all sorts of other things that we're not even told about in Scripture. I mean, I do believe that I'm going to stand there and give an account for my family. I believe that as a husband and as a father. But I'm told what I'm going to be giving an account of right here. This day will come. It makes me think about 
the steward who's been given a charge over the master's house. He's responsible for all the business dealings, all the relationships inside the house. He's responsible for treating the master's servants well, all while the master is away. He's gone right now, but someday he will return. And he knows, already knows, everything that has taken place inside of his house. And he calls that steward and says, you come forth and you tell me how you have handled all of my affairs. And again, he knows it all. And here he comes forward and has to say, this is what I have done with all the people that you have entrusted to me. So Jesus will say to his leaders, how have you cared for my sheep? My sheep. They were never your sheep. They were always mine. And I entrusted you. How have you done this job? When I was thinking over pastoral ministry, I was told, if you can do anything else and be happy with it, go and do it. And it's scripture like this that's behind those words. You will give an account, not just for your life, but for the lives of others, the souls of others. Now for the flock. There's something here for you as well. Knowing that your leaders will stand and give an account someday should play a particular kind of role in your desire to obey and submit to their leading. And so yes, you should desire to do the word of God because you love the Savior of the word, of course. Yes, you should desire to obey the word of God because it is best for your own soul. It is for your own good. But I think that there is something here that he is saying to this flock here that we call the book of Hebrews, this particular church, where he is telling them, think of these brothers who have been called to serve as your leaders, your pastors, who will one day stand before the Lord and give an account for you. You. And he's telling them that love for these men will compel you to want to make their work a joy, not a burden. Have you ever thought of that? I rarely do. And I'm thankful for the Word of God that reminds me for that. That I will someday stand and give an account for the people who are sitting in this room right now. But your name will come up. Your leaders will give an answer for you. And if you're here long enough, whoever comes after me, that person will answer for the sheep that are here at Kaz until the Lord Jesus returns. That's the way that it works. And so a good shepherd's job is to feed and protect and lead the sheep for the good of the animal. But in every flock out there on that hill, I'm sure there are one or two that just like to run away. They're prone to run off and get hung up in the briars, fall into a ditch. And it's the shepherd's job to go and bring those sheep back. 
And all the while, we all know that it's just better if the animal were to have stayed with the rest of the flock, where there is health, there's safety, than to run off and get injured. But sometimes it's just so attractive to run off, isn't it? As long as you have leaders, shepherds, who faithfully speak the word of God to you in season and out of season. And the way that I'm using that phrase is when you want to hear it and when you don't. In season. I like what I'm hearing. Out of season. Oh, that's hard. You need to keep this phrase or this verse in mind. Love for those shepherds will make you want their work in the field of God to be a joy. And hopefully, it is love for the sheep and the Savior that presses your pastors, your elders, myself, forward in the work. But it's not simply love that should make you want their work to be a joy. It is knowledge that to do what they are saying is for your own benefit as well. He says that here. He says, don't let their work be a groan, a challenge, a burden, a hardship, for that would be of no advantage to you. And don't you want it to be an advantage to you for the building of your faith? Sometimes your leaders in this church are going to have to say hard things hard things. And hopefully it is coming from a place of love, but if nothing else, it's going to come from a place where this is God's word and it must be done. And that you will receive it as such. It is for the good of your own soul. An under-shepherd is only doing the task of the good shepherd. And the Lord has called imperfect men to care for his flock until he returns. But the aim of those imperfect men is not to call the sheep to simply honor them. So any leader here better not be just looking for a pat on the back. Better not be looking for human praise, ambitious to simply use that flock for a while and just move on to somebody else. It better not be that way. A pastor has been given that authority to call the flock to obey Christ not him. And that's the idea that's underneath these words in verse 17 when he says to obey your leaders and submit to them. Most people don't like words like that. I don't like being told what to do. Nobody knows what's best for me. But there are in just about every relationship or every place where you are in some form or fashion, authority. Whether it's growing up in a home as a child, whether it's at work, and also here in Christ's church. You are not to obey and submit to everything that they say. You need to understand that. I had a conversation this week with a guy who's a member here in the church. I don't think he's here this morning. He was looking at property, and he wanted to know what I thought, and so I offered what I thought. I told him, I don't think you should buy that property. Well, he did. He bought the property. Good for him, you know. But all he was soliciting from me was just an opinion. There was no authority behind that whatsoever. He can do whatever he wants. But if the situation had been different and he were to say to me, like, should I be doing this or that when it pertains to sin? 
Should I chase after that particular sin? What do you think, pastor? Well, I don't know. And he does, like, ah, that was your choice to make. Absolutely not. In that situation, it's far different. The Lord has given shepherds to his church to wield a kind of authority that is Christ's. They're not calling, they're not being called to have obedience to themselves, but to Jesus and his word. And we don't need to hedge on that. And we don't need to be afraid of that because we're told it is for our good. Jason said that a little while ago when he got up here and read, talking about Galatians. God's word is for our good. If it's from the Lord, he knows what is best, and I need to submit to him and those who call me to submit to his word. That's what we're being told here. Some of you just took a membership class. And if you choose to go forward with membership here, this is what you are signing up for. Accountability to other members, yes, but also submitting to your elders like this. Confessing that pastors have been given to your church for the good of the flock. And I hope nobody in this room is thinking that I am trying to call people to submission to me just because I say, I'm saying so here. I hope that you are seeing this here in God's word. I do not want to be self-serving in any way as I read this. We're all seeking to follow Christ. We've just been given different roles. And you called me to be your pastor 10 years ago. And I'm trying to do that faithfully, some days better than others, believe me. And I can confess to you the calling of pastor is a privilege. And I can lose sight of that at times. I can get used to it. I can become normal to me because I can lose sight of Christ at times just like you can. But I'm thankful for this church who was willing and maybe, I would say, almost maybe desperate enough to hire somebody as experienced I was that many years ago. And you've been so gracious and patient and modeled love to me along the way, what it means to be a leader in this church. You have helped me along the way, and I am grateful. And I need passages like this to remind me of what it means to be a leader in Jesus' church. And I'm going to close with a quote from one of my favorite pastors. What you find along the way is that you need other people to pastor you too, and it seems that most of the people who have pastored me that have gone before me are all long since dead, and they've left it in their books. And I've read them. One of my favorites is Charles Spurgeon. Maybe you've read some of him as well. But he gives a summary of pastoral ministry that I find encouraging. And it makes me want to serve well, help many to finish well, and someday finish well myself. And he likens himself to a man named Mr. Greatheart, who represents a pastor in the second pilgrim's progress. And he helps to guide Christiana, who was Christian's wife, his children. He's now in the celestial city, and Mr. Greatheart helps them to get there. This is what he says. I am occupied in my small way as Mr. Greatheart was employed in Bunyan's day. I do not compare myself with that champion but I am in the same line of business. I am engaged in personally conducted tours to heaven, and I have with me at the present time dear old Father Honest. I'm glad he's still alive and active. And there is Christiana, and there are her children. It is my business as best I can to kill dragons and cut off giants' heads and lead on the timid and the trembling. I'm often afraid of losing some of the weaklings. I have the heartache for them, 
But by God's grace and your kind and generous help in looking after one another, I hope we shall all travel safely to the river's edge. Oh, how many I have had to part with there. I have stood on the brink and I have heard them singing in the midst of the stream. And I've almost seen the shining ones lead them up the hill and through the gates into the celestial city. I think that's beautiful. And I certainly don't compare myself with Mr. Greatheart, and I certainly don't compare myself with Mr. Spurgeon, but I'm still in the same kind of business. And I've had to lead some close to the river's edge as well, and I hope many more, and to hear them singing in the midst of the stream, which is death, singing because they have finished well. And I get to play a part in that, and so do you. And I hope, like Spurgeon says here, I hope that we shall all travel safely to the river's edge. That means we have made it all the way, no matter what else you have accumulated in life, no matter what else you have done, that you have made it all the way in faith. That's what matters. And you're about to see Jesus, and you are celebrating. That's what these people in the book of Hebrews are being encouraged to do. Make it all the way. And that's what we're being encouraged to do too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church. We call ourselves Kaz Church. This ministry has been here for 126 years. A lot of people have come and gone, and there has been a lot of people in this church over the years to imitate because they have had a faith that not only preached the word, but lived it. And we want to be those kinds of people as well. Life can distract us. There's a lot on our minds. There's a lot that we prioritize there's a lot, of th- a lot of things that we value. But I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us the conviction this morning that Jesus Christ is of utmost importance to value. Godliness, faithfulness has value in this life, but also into the next. Strengthen the people here at Kaz Church to walk faithfully. And we understand that sin is going to trip us up sometimes along the way. We make no excuses, but we want to look to Christ, the one who has bled and died for our sins. We want to continue to keep our eyes on him who has gone before us as our pioneer. He is in the heavenly places right now. And one day he will call every one of his servants home to be with him. And we want to be found faithful on that day. It may come for some this week. And I pray, God, that if it does, those dear saints will rejoice as they wade out into that river. One day it will be me. I want to finish well. Whether I'm still considered a somewhat young man or I get to live until I am an old man. I want to live till I'm an old man. But I trust my days into your hands and ask that no matter when you call me home, that as a leader in the church, that I will make it there faithfully and all might be able to look back on my own life and say, he made it. I want to too. 
May we all say that inside of our hearts. We're all called to lead in some way. Somebody that is behind us in the faith. May we all be an example to imitate. Not stay children in the faith, but mature. Lord God, plant your word in our hearts and may it find good soil to grow and bear much fruit in the days ahead until Jesus calls us home. Please give us. We ask it in Jesus' name.